To episode 38 of Contested Catch. We're back again and we're going to be talking about some auction league draft recap here today and some strategy that went into it. Don't be afraid though, if you are a snake drafter, this will apply to you as well. This is more about a, uh, a conversation about players that Jeff and I are targeting, strategies that we had in terms of roster construction, uh, and then also taking a look at some values. And it's a little bit um, more difficult to extrapolate that to a snake draft, but you get the general idea if players are going for low auction value numbers, uh, then they're probably late round picks as well and vice versa. So without further ado, Jeff, you're back again, my friend. How are you? Hey, 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 Will. We only got uh, two more weeks until kickoff. I can't wait, dude. Unbelievable. Like, after this excruciating long off season, we're almost there. I can't believe it, man. Seriously, it's... uh. We took it for granted, I think. I think everyone like didn't quite realize how awesome it is to see. Like, dude, one of my favorite things is the Hall of Fame game. <laughs> that like phantom week technically week one of the preseason, that first game that's a week before. That shit is so fun because <laughs> it's finally football again. I know like none of the games matter, none of the usage really matters. Like it's not it's not that much, but it's like the little blurbs we hear in training camp, the little hype pieces, the puff pieces, all that stuff. It's uh it's fun and it gives us something to think about before the season actually gets underway. So we're like you said, you know, we're there basically. But but Jeff, we're, today we're going to be talking about our auction league, our home league, which I think is a very competitive league. We're in our thirteenth season. Uh, many of our listeners probably feel similar about their home league as well. Um, and I'm just going to recap our league format. If you listen to episode 37, uh, where we had Kyle Singer and Noah Rockoff on, they actually have a very very, if not almost exactly. Uh, the same format um, as we do for our league. So this will be a little redundant for them, but for anyone who hasn't listened to episode 37, basically we are a half PPR league, 12, 12 team, um, and we have an auction draft. But not only that, we also have a small keeper element. So basically you take a player at their auction value, the next season you can keep up to two players for a combined budget for those keepers of $75. The catch is that each player will inflate by $5 the first year you keep them and $10 the second year you keep them. So that's a total of 15 over two years. And then they have to re-enter the player pool in the third season. Did I get all that right, Jeff? I miss anything that you think is worth noting? Uh, no, I think you nailed it. I'd say the small difference from last year is we were standard and made the transition to half PPR scoring. Um, yep. Which just a minor shift in strategy, but nothing too major. Yeah, I, I'm honestly, I was re, I was reluctant to move to any sort of PPR for a long time, and then I I was converted to half PPR. I um I, I think that's a good move for our league, uh, and then just in general as well. We didn't get rid of kickers this year. We didn't add an extra flex. I know that's something you and I were are all about, but uh, you know, I guess it's a it's a slow oh, slow moving. My team would be so in so much better shape if we had an extra flex, but. You're right. I mean, it would have changed everyone's strategy. So, you know, can't really dwell on that too much. That's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah. So we had our auction draft just about a week ago. Um, 
I thought it was a lot of fun. I think everyone was really nervous because we had these keeper elements um, that were going to affect prices. So when we talk about what players went for in our drafts, please recognize that there were other players. For instance, I kept Miles Sanders for $26. I got him for 21 last year. The significance of that is I had around, you could you could estimate it around $20, $25 of savings, depending on what you would value him at on the open market. So um, same was the case for other players in our league. Jabron Ahmed, who's been a, um, a, a frequent guest on Contested Catch, he had uh, enormous savings with Kenny Drake and Aaron Jones being kept for $16 a piece. So $32 total for two RB1-ish players that allowed him to spend big in other areas. So keep that in mind. But without further ado, let's get into it, Jeff. Uh, why don't we start by just talking about your strategy, the maybe some of the, the top players you were targeting, and what you were thinking about as the draft progressed. So I started our draft with my keepers as Lamar Jackson for $8 and Austin Eckler for $20. Um, so I kind of was already going in, especially like Lamar, just potential to provide like such a competitive advantage at the QB position. I think it was on fantasypoints.com or uh, or one of the writers on Twitter basically posted a chart of fantasy war and recently and like Lamar Jackson was from 2012 to 2019 number two fantasy war player right behind Christian McCaffrey last year which is like an anomaly for quarterbacks even like Lamar Jack or not um, Patrick Mahomes in 2018 didn't even crack the top 15 the only other quarterback on that list wow. was Peyton Manning in his 55 touchdown season. So that's the potential competitive advantage I was gaining with Lamar. Um, you know, he, I kept him for $8. So even though we, you know, talk about late round QB strategy is like $8 in this format is more of like a seventh, eighth round player that I'm keeping him for. So that's like some important right. context there. And then with Austin Eckler, um, you know, $20, he's someone that we kind of thought we might've been below consensus on early in the off season, but he's really kind of gotten pushed down to that second round anyway. So then for $20 to, you know, like, you know, again, in the context of our league, that's like a fifth, sixth round value uh, to try and give you an idea in a snake format. So that's where I entered the draft is basically with a late second round player in Austin Eckler, and then a two, three turn guy in Lamar Jackson. Um, from there, historically, my strategy has been to hammer the upper running back tier. I use I love getting like my bell cow, sometimes even two. Uh and this year it's just uh there was a deviation. Uh so I've typically have found our league to be a lot more hesitant or uh, to open the draft, which allows some of those top guys to be almost like suppressed. And then that next like tier of round two running backs has kind of been uh like pushed up so that you're actually the gap isn't that big. For us this year. A lot of that second round type of talent was just off the board to begin with because of keepers, Nick Chubb, Josh Jacobs, Kenyon Drake, Aaron Jones, Miles Sanders, Dalvin Cook, Derek Henry, were all off the board for pretty good values, giving guys a lot extra money to spend. So that entire like top tier, two tiers of running backs was just pushed up. My hope was... Um, I mean, my hope was that there'd only be a few guys chase them and then one would be a value. Um, partic- J- uh, Joe Mixon was, I felt like the most likely candidate, but eventually he kind of just got pushed up out of my price range. I figured that was the most, even though that was plan A, I figured 
that was not likely to happen. From there, the uh, I had one player in this draft I was really targeting. Uh, that was my RB1 from this draft class, Jonathan Taylor. So um, I really was kind of sitting back and waiting for him to go. And then I just kind of wanted to have him locked in to my roster and know how much I was going to spend. My hope was 25. I had him penciled in for 30. But as the draft was kind of going on, I realized that our good friend, uh, Jake Volker, I knew he was going to um, be my competition in the bid for him um, because he wasn't going after any of the other running backs. He was kind of playing wide receiver a little bit. And last year, I knew he was the winning bidder for uh, Josh Jacobs. And uh, he was in a big price war with you for David Montgomery. And then considering that uh, his stud keeper for this year, Nick Chubb, would have be forced to go into free agency next year, um, I knew he was going to be the person to force me up. And I ended up paying 35 for Taylor, which is basically the... And and go ahead. I was going to say, Jeff, what what were you targeting? Like, I'm curious what your your, hopeful estimate for the price of Taylor was since he was your main target. Well, I had him penciled in for 30. Um, okay, I think that's fair. Yeah. So, and also when I was budgeting out this um, kind of like skeleton roster, if I missed out on that top tier, then David Johnson was my other target and I kind of had him penciled in for like 25 to 30. Right. Um, he ended up going for like 32, 33. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of out here. And I should probably mention, I actually got DJ Moore for a great value at $25, like in the early second right. round. I'm not like, I don't know why everyone was just kind of off on him, but, um, you know, I expected him to go for um, like low 30s. And I kind of had penciled in somebody like Tyler Lockett into that spot for 25 ish. So uh, I had already also gotten a good value on DJ Moore there that I was comfortable paying up a little bit more. And then knowing that I was, going to pivot down from David Johnson at 25 to 30 into a lower range. I was going to have election money anyway. So I got Taylor for 35 and then I didn't really have a plan for wide receiver, like uh, specific in terms of guys I was targeting specifically. There were some players I had sort of crossed off like Calvin Ridley was just somebody I wasn't going to target. Um, and I basically kind of played a, you know, tiers and values. So like, I ended up with DK Metcalf for 18, which was a really good value considering Tyler Lockett went for like 28 or 29, like 29, 29, a couple picks later. Um, Hollywood Brown was really the only guy I was sort of targeting because I just wanted to stack him with Omar, but he wasn't like a must have. Right. So I got him for 16. Um, I think, you know, the, the other thing is that I misread the room a little bit with, uh, my other receiver, which was Parker, because you and I were in a bid war on um, DJ Chark. And I just kind of looked at the draft board and I saw that um, Devontae Parker was still available. And once we kind of had bid up Chark, I was like, eh, I can pivot down to Parker and save $5. I misread the room because our good friend, Michael Kazor, needed to a wide receiver as well. And I knew he should have known. Um, so I should have recognized that knowing he's a Parker fan. So, and instead of getting um, charged for like 25, I ended up paying up 28 for Parker. You know, just a minor thing, but nothing bad. Um, at that point in the draft, I had a surplus, so it didn't really matter. Then during the uh, Jonathan Taylor bid war, 
just kind of, you know, listening to everyone's reactions. I realized Bastard's kind of out on the rookies and had, I think because of the lack of training camp news might've played a little role, but aside from Volker, everyone stopped bidding around $20. So like, there's comments like, isn't Marlon Max still the starter? It's like kind of, so I just realized that I think I'm going to be able to get Swift and or Acres for, um, or Dobbins for a pretty good deal. You kind of ruined the Dobbins things. We'll get to that later. But it's like I end up scooping up DeAndre Swift and Cam Akers for the exact same price I would have had to pay for David Johnson. Um, and yes, that's what I did. And basically, like after Jonathan Taylor, I was really just swinging for upside at running back. I didn't really care about getting a floor play like Le'Veon Bell or Jordan Howard. Um, you know, I just wanted like pure upside, especially since I missed out on that, all those top running backs. Like I, I just wouldn't be able to compete by rotating through, you know, running back twenties throughout the season. So I just kind of needed to give myself as much start throws and like those rookie running backs really just kind of give the uh, best chance at that. And yeah. And then tight end, my strategy is usually just kind of like double tap those cheaper guys. Tyler Higby was not somebody I was planning on drafting. Um, but that's not because I didn't like the player that much, just I thought he was a little overvalued and they're in like a snake draft format. Um, you know, there's just too many other receivers in that range compared that are like good values um, for what you're giving up uh, when you'd be drafting Higby. But he was just, I think it was Joe threw him out for a dollar and just nobody wanted him. So I just, bid $2 and, you know, and ended up with him, which was fine with me. I mean, my plan was to double tap Gasecki and Hawkinson. And instead I got Hapy, who I had ranked higher, even though like I just expected his value to be closer to 10 based on how he finished last year. So I ended up with Higby for two. Wasn't a plan, but it was, you know, a great pick. And then I got Gasecki. And then uh, still just kind of swinging upside with Duke Johnson our show's a big fan of his and don't understand why he doesn't get mm-hmm. used more. Probably end, going to end up just getting five touches a game while David Johnson's out there with um, kind of being okay. But if anything happens to David Johnson, again, he's in a position to smash. I ended up with Deshaun Jackson for a dollar. I don't know why nobody wanted him. Um, I mean, we'll get into your Regor talk, but I mean, basically every case you can make for Regor, you can also make for D-Jax. So I got him for a dollar. Yep. And then Jarek McKinnon is recently starting to make some camp news. And again, just, you know, complete upside swing. If anything happens to Lestert and or Tevin Coleman, McKinnon has potential to take control of that 49ers backfield. And we all know how that can pan out. Even if he's only able to stay healthy for three weeks as the lead back, like that's three weeks of great running back production. And then Steve Sims Jr. was just a pick for the brand. I love it. I love it. I thought you had um, a very classic Jeff Gould draft. I thought you targeted the players that fit your mold of guys you like. And, you know, I'm not that far off from you either, Jeff, because I look at your team and I see no clear top tier guys besides Lamar and Eckler. And you could even make an argument about Eckler. And yet you have almost everyone on your roster has the ability to ascend like one or if not two or three tiers above where they were drafted. So, 
Um, you almost completely cornered the rookie RB market. I uh, I took a little share myself, and we'll get to that. But I did think you do, you did a good job. I, I especially liked the value with DK Metcalf at 18. You already pointed it out, but Tyler Lockett went for 29. I do not have them at that big of a separation in my own rankings, and which are coming out shortly. Um, but you know, eleven dollar difference there. I think there's a decent chance that DK Metcalf overtakes Tyler Lockett as a wide receiver one in Seattle this year. And even if he doesn't, the discount you got on him relative to other guys in his tier. For instance, I paid uh, twenty four for DJ Chark. I thought you you get more than enough upside for that price. And then obviously with Hollywood Brown also in that tier to me for sixteen to stack him with Lamar. Um, that, that could end up being one of your best values overall. Yeah. And like Metcalf and Brown are probably going to be a little more volatile. Well, I think like, DJ Moore was so consistent last year. And I think it's good. Even with Kyle Allen yeah, quarterback. Like he's like one of the leaders in yards before age 23. And he's just a stud. Now you have Teddy Bridgewater and you're hearing reports out of, you know, like, you know, great connection. So I, I feel like he provides a very high, to the extent any wide receiver can, he provides a very high floor as that wide receiver one that I can also afford that volatility in the wide receiver two or flex spot that Metcalf or Brown is likely to get there. Okay, maybe they'll have a week where they only get like three targets for or three catches for 30 yards or something. But then they're going to have that week where they just go off for you know, like 150 yards and two touchdowns. And having like that floor play in DJ Moore and probably and then probably Austin Eckler as well, like just kind of affords me that like volatility in the other spot as opposed to, um, say like Ronnie Sandin, who actually had like a pretty good draft for him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our uh, league leader last year who had to or leader by leader, I mean, he finished last, who had to toss on a Matthew Berry podcast mid-draft. Um, so he has Tyreek Hill, Mike Evans, and Amari Cooper, which is actually a really good wide receiver core, um, but they're all volatile. So exactly. by playing all three of those in one week, they could combine for 80 points and win him the game, or it could just be the week that none of them hit, and he's looking at like 10 to 15 between the three of them. Um, so it's just like kind of a game of variance and how much do you want to like collective variance do you want between you guys? So I kind of wanted somebody who was going to provide a nice floor and then round it out with a little more like higher volatility, perhaps play the matchups a little bit type of situation. Definitely. Um, Jeff, let me ask you, who was a player that you were targeting that you would have hoped to have gotten, but maybe you got priced out or you didn't allocate enough? It uh, doesn't have to be an expensive player, but but who's someone that you felt you missed out on that you were really looking forward to? Um, like Chase Edmonds somewhat, but I was kind of just between him or Duke Johnson. So, and I realized that Chase Edmonds was making more noise. I was not likely to have the budget to go after him. And then Duke Johnson was put up there and I basically had to decide, okay, do I want to bid, you know, get him for three or $4 and give up my chance of getting Chase Edmonds or take a gamble that I'd be able to get Chase Edmonds for like five or six. And so I just said, all right, I'm just taking Duke Johnson right now. And it was the right call because Edmonds went for eight. That's a fair uh, decision that you made there. I, I also really like Edmonds. You know, we've been very vocal about our liking of him. Um, and 
and you know, I guess the other side of the coin is disliking Kenyon Drake just because of his price reflects uh, a stranglehold on the lead job, which we don't necessarily believe in. And so Edmonds going for eight will sound egregious to some who think he's like no more than a late round pick. But the point is, Edmonds has been talked up by his coach this offseason. He's got a chance to reclaim a part of that uh, of that RB1 workload and not just be, you know, uh, a reserve when Kenny Drake needs a breather. So I thought that J- Joe maybe paid a little bit above what fair market value is. But when you consider the upside, I thought that was a, a fair price. And then, you know, you still get a semblance of the same type of thing with Duke Johnson, where we're assuming David Johnson gets uh, a stranglehold, uh, you know, RB1 workload. And yet nothing is a given with Bill O'Brien at the coat as coach. Um, and you got him for five less dollars. So that was a good move. Yeah. And then the only other place where I got priced out a little bit was I wanted to get a piece of the Cowboys passing offense in the form of Michael Gallup or CD lamb and just ended up not really having the budget there. Um, Gallup went for 11 and CD lamb went for eight, nothing too shocking, but I was hoping either one of them might go for a few dollars cheaper. So, uh, but I mean, I kind of ended up with a solid top four wide receiver core that I can't really complain too much. Yeah, you have a lot of upside uh, captured in that wide receiver core, for sure. Um, so in, in terms of my strategy going in, I started by keeping Mahomes for 16 and Miles Sanders for 26. Now, we already talked about your case for Lamar. Obviously, Mahomes is double Lamar's price. Uh, this is also the last year I can keep him. I kept him uh, the previous year as well for 11, or uh, six rather. Um, and I, I know, Jeff, you mentioned that you were a little surprised by the Mahomes keep. And I think we're in agreement that it was because he's just a little pricier than either of us would typically spend on a quarterback, considering you got Lamar for $3. I got Mahomes for $1. The previous year, I got Carson Wentz as a late round uh, pick in a snake draft. You know, we are kind of, um, we are big proponents of the late round quarterback strategy and, and typically have been on the right guys in that regard. But for me with Mahomes, I just felt that at least in our league, I felt he was going to go in the mid 20s. I think once we saw, um, the way that some of these other quarterbacks ended up, uh, what they ended up going for, for instance, Kyler Murray going for 11, Dak going for 15, Deshaun going for 12. I think if Lamar or Mahomes, or even more so if just one of them was on the open market, they definitely uh, exceed 20. So I felt like I was getting a little bit of savings and at least locking in one of the best players in the game that has a competitive advantage over basically any other quarterback besides maybe Lamar. Um, and the other way I looked at it was, you know, if I hate, the way it comes out, I can always trade him and still have recouped some value in that way. So I started with Mahomes, and by keeping him and my RB1 Sanders, I felt really good about allocating more to other positions than other people might be willing to do. Um, for instance, I was really targeting Kittle or Kelsey. I thought I might be able to get either for in the 25 to 35 range, settling in around $30. That's about where they went. That didn't happen for me because I actually won the very first guy that was nominated, uh, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and I felt great about that pick. Now, I allocated for Clyde when I was considering him in in certain skeleton roster constructions. I was like, if I can get him for around 55, I feel pretty good about the way the rest of this team's going to shape out. I was actually really heavily debating a uh, more of a zero RB approach, but I wasn't going to force that, and I wasn't going to force a robust RB either. So when I saw Clyde there sitting at 57, I hit bid and when I won it for 58, and then I saw every other RB that I have above him, which are only four, uh, that's Kamara went for 67, 
Saquon went for 67, Zeke went for 69, and CMC went for 71. I felt great about the savings because I really think that he is just a spot below those guys. Obviously, significantly more risk when we're talking about a rookie uh, in this climate, in this economy. <laughs> but um, I think the point is that I have a monopoly on the Kansas City Chiefs touchdowns, with the exception of, as you already put into the air, which I hated, Jeff, the, the saying that uh, DeAndre Washington or Darrell Williams is going to um, vaulter a week one touchdown. I hate to hear that. <laughs> well, but, or, um, you know, or they use Travis Kelsey as the goal line wildcat. Yeah, we don't want to see that. I do. Maybe he throws it to... <laughs> I do. Okay, fine. Um, anyway, this was uh, something that I absolutely loved when Kareem Hunt was still a member of the Chiefs. He had eight receiving touchdowns, I believe, that year once I traded for him. Um, getting 10 points for every receiving touchdown that a running back gets because you have the quarterback is just so juicy. So that was a stack I was happy with. And then my my strategy wasn't to like wait on any position necessarily. Um, I missed out on the big tight ends, and then I'm not as interested in those middle-tier tight ends. Um, so I ended up getting Austin Hooper late for $1, which I found to be a great value. Now I'm maybe talking about like a three or four or $5 savings. Um, but I have Hooper higher in that middle tier, uh, and that, that tier three or four range, um, than a lot of other guys. And for getting him for $1, I felt pretty good about that. Um, but really what I think my draft came down to was not being aggressive enough on wide receivers that I was interested in. For instance, I really, really like Adam Thielen this year. Thielen went to Brian for $32. Now, at that point in the draft, Brian had only paid $67 for Camara, and then he kept Singletary for 6 So Brian was in a driver's seat in terms of being able to spend a lot. He also spent, I think, 43 last year on Adam Thielen. So I felt pretty confident that he was going to price me out. And rather than trying to price and force, I let him go, hoping that I would then be able to get Allen Robinson, who then went for 35 So that was a bummer. Um, I really wanted to get at least one of those guys and then maybe Juju who went for 29 to Gibran, um, who, and we'll talk about Jib's team as well. Um, but so basically my first pick outside of the very first player, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, was Tyler Boyd for $10. Boyd was someone that I found myself liking, but not drafting throughout the summer. And I, and I kept questioning that, especially as I was working through my rankings, I was wondering like why I like him and I'm not taking him. And I think it's just because it's such a crowded skill position room in Cincinnati and they have a rookie quarterback. But the reason I like him is that he seems like the he feels like the safest share you can get and the cheapest share, with the exception of maybe Auden Tate, as we discussed on Twitter, uh, of, of I think a pretty high powered Cincinnati offense that, you know, maybe this is my, you know, leave optimism uh, coming in. But for $10, I feel pretty good about securing him as like a like a low end wide receiver two maybe more of a wide receiver three type with a high floor. But I mean, he saw almost 150 targets last year without AJ Green. AJ Green's already got a hamstring injury this training camp. He might be healthy now. Either way, I feel pretty good about Boyd there um, and and at least securing like a floor type guy. And then as you already alluded to, I ended up getting DJ Chark for $24. And I settled in in that tier of, of second year wide receivers mainly, you know, including also guys like Fuller, who's a little older. Um, Really liking Terry McLaurin and DJ Chark purely because of the game scripts I felt they were going to be in and the volume they saw last year. Um, DJ Chark, I think, had 118 targets last year, and there really isn't anything different except the fact that Leonard Fournette is almost certain to get less uh, targets himself. Um, Tyler Eifert was added to the offense. 
Chris Thompson was added, he might just, you know, maybe the, the target allocation to running backs is the same with Chris Thompson in play. But either way, DJ Chark looks like an ascending player. And Gardner Minshew showed and they drafted LaVisca Chenault. They did they did draft LaVisca Chenault. Right. He's uh what do you call him? The Chenault. The Chenault weapon. weapon. Is that your yep, exactly. Um, but the point is there's no one challenging um Chark for the wide receiver one role. Um it's not like Marquise Brown, who obviously went for eight dollars cheaper, so it's not quite uh, you know, apples to apples there. But Mark Andrews is the number one target in that offense. And I felt pretty good that Chark has a really safe volume floor as well as that huge uh weekly spike ability. So he wasn't someone that I was saying, let me get him as my wide receiver one, but that's how it played out. And then and staying on wide receivers, I actually feel really good about the next two picks that I ended up making, which was Deontay Johnson for $4 and Debo Samuel for three. Now, starting on Deontay, he's obviously um, you know, an ascending player, a popular sleeper slash breakout candidate. We know what the wide receiver two position has done in Pittsburgh. And as Jeff and I discussed earlier in the summer, some people are even saying that Deontay Johnson is a superior player or is going to become the wide receiver one in Pittsburgh over Juju Smith-Schuster. I'm not going. Rem- yeah, I mean, that's a trash yeah, take. Agree. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going nearly that far. Some people, um, actually, JJ Zacharyson, late round quarterback, said that he was close to putting that as his bold prediction that Deontay Johnson would outscore Juju Smith Schuster uh, in, in a piece that he put out. Now, he didn't. And I personally don't agree with it. But at $4 for Deontay Johnson, when Big Ben appears to be healthy, we know what this offense has done in the past. I felt pretty good about that, considering I went pretty cheap at wide receiver otherwise. And then. With Debo Samuel at $3, obviously there's significant injury risk there, um, re-injury risk, even though it appears that he might be available earlier than we once expected. I'm a little bit of a Debo stan. Um, I drafted him last year. I think that the wide receiver core in San... I drafted him last year. Did you? Year. Oh, you priced me out. You're right. You're right. But then he was on waivers, I think. Yeah, and then you picked him yeah, up. Yeah, that's what it was. Him. I picked him back up. You're right. You're right. Um but yeah, so Debo's just a... And then you lost a bunch of money gambling on him in the Super Bowl. <laughs> I won a bunch of money. Well, no, I lost overall in the Super Bowl, I think. Yeah, that was because I didn't take the over on his rushing numbers. Um, way, way to rub it in, Jeff. Uh, yeah, so I got Debo for $3. Obviously, injury risk is clear. But I would have... If Debo is completely healthy and Brandon Ayuk was on the shelf and Jalen Hurd goes down with an ACL injury, I'm probably targeting Debo as like the wide receiver two in my roster construction, not necessarily valuing him as such, but I think he's definitely in that tier, maybe behind a guy like Marquise Brown. Um, The volume is expected to go up this year, even without all the injuries. Uh, He's also used so creatively that he should continue to be a rack monster and um, have rushing production a la Robert Woods. So, you know, there's risk there, but I'm not banking on him to produce either. So Jeff, now we're at the point in the draft where I start getting leaves guys. Um, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Brett. Uh, Brett Singer was saying, backdoor Bert, if you remember him uh, from last season, um, was saying leave always has so much money. And then I think Joe chimed in saying that um, it's time to start nominating leaves guys. And that worked. I did pay up for um, my two, two of my must-have guys, Antonio Gibson and Jalen Regor. But this is the beautiful thing, Jeff. I allocated a, like an average of ten dollars. I was the one, and I was the one who nominated. Gibson. You did. You did. It was smart. But I got him for like I thought pretty reasonable. I'd actually I had texted, 
I texted uh, Jib and Mark, like who were right ahead of me, yo, nominate Gibson, yo, Fuck nominate off, Gibson. And they're like, why? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, they're like, uh, why? I'm like, because he's one of Lev's guys and we got to get him bid up and, you know, basically bleed as much cash as we can <laughs> before people are just like spending on other guys. Uh, that's fair. Like that, that, that's, part definitely of the, that's part of auction strategy, is. you know, timing is key. Um, no, we knew, we knew that Will was going to, you know, go after Gibson. So I'm just like, look, we, I got to um, toss him out now because it, like, it's at a point where people have enough money that somebody should be able to bid him up. But uh, there's not, not everyone has that. So if someone like whoever else might have been on Gibson goes and gets whoever, I don't know, like admins or whatever, now they can't you know, bid him up. And, you know. I mean, in the words of the great Mark Francis, on draft day, you either die or get killed. <laughs> so, you know, you got to, you know, there's uh, no holding back for that, you know, three, four hour span when you're at the table together or Zoom in the case of 2020. No yeah. holds barred. And when I mean, Gibson coat goes up, I still had a good amount of money ready to spend. And like I said, I was allocating around $10 for each him and Regor. It actually worked out perfectly where I spent seven on Gibson and 13 on Regor. And I'm okay with both of those prices. I know they're they're probably significantly above market value. Gibson maybe is a little closer. Regor definitely above market value. But obviously with Gibson, I've been on him all summer, well before the Darius guys release. Um, as Jeff and I talked about, that cannot be victory lapped because that's not part of the analysis. It wasn't like they might release him all summer or something like that. Um, so, but Gibson, it just feels like uh, an upside play that I'm willing to take a chance on and feel really good about getting him. Um, and and then Jalen Regor for 13, again, above market value. But I mean, Jeff and I talked about it last episode. We've talked about it all summer. I've been tweeting about it nonstop. He's like the guy for me this year. Just It just feels like a combination of great talent and great opportunity. Um, and now he has great responsibility to produce from all my teams. <laughs> um, but, but Jeff, I think someone that we need to circle back on that I ended up getting when we're talking about the rookie RB market is J.K. Dobbins. And that was someone that I was wholeheartedly... He is Jimmy Betts. Yeah. Betts. I, uh, oh, hey, what's up, buddy? Uh, Bronny Betts just entered the room. Um, and I think JK Dobbins was a guy that you, I, I expected you to end up with, I expected you to go up to like 25, maybe for him. And I know that you were surprised that I bid at 20. Uh, what were your thoughts on Dobbins, uh, in the context of our draft? Um, so I mean, for 2020, I have him as the lowest of the top five rookies. Um, I think he has maybe like the second highest upside for in the future, like 2021, 2022. Uh, but I, I think he's lowest. I haven't ranked those at the top five because he really has the least direct path to like a bell cow role. Um, like even with Ingram, like the only what is Ingram it's Dobbins and it's Edwards. Like, I don't think Edwards is simply going away and he's probably good for three to five carries per game. Um, then like, even if Dobbins starts overtaking Ingram for touches, they're not just going to, Give, like give him the bell cow role. And even like last year, Mark Ingram, who finished as a uh, running back one, was still very touchdown dependent for like his good weeks. If he didn't score a touchdown, then you actually were somewhat disappointed with what you got that week. And, and part of that is- Luckily he scored 15 over the course of the season. 
Right. So now it's like, okay, maybe you divvy up the touchdown equity between Ingram's and Do- Ingram and Dobbins a little bit. Um, Edwards snipes a couple. So I really feel like the only way for Dobbins to see that that high of like a return is for Ingram to get injured. And really, you're not really trying to bank on, especially he's like really not. Like he was completely healthy last year, and when they're splitting the like the workload the way that we project them to, it also reduces injury risk. So I was like, I was very surprised that you bid up that much. Like I just kind of had a budget for like ten to twelve, and I mean part of it was also a brand pick for me because like my friend reps him as uh, his like agent. So I'm like, but I'm like I wasn't. So like, I kind of realized like okay, this is one of Will's guys when you started bidding up. And so I was kind of like, all right, I, I think once we hit like $13, $14, I wasn't even trying to win him. I was price enforcing. Mm. Well, it worked. <laughs> um, and, like I, and I just, and again, seeing how, um, that's really like the only instance of price enforcing I think I had this draft. Um, I guess I, and I, I, once we got to that point, I was like, I'd much rather have Swifter Acres at this value than Dobbins. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of like once, when we hit that point, I was just like, I'm just going to, I realized Will had the money and he was one of your targets. So I was like, I can easily juice another $5 out of you. You, you made a good point. I mean, obviously it worked because I ended up winning him for more um, than than when you would have stopped. But um, the, the reason that I'm higher on Dobbins than I am on Swift or Acres is that you're right. He probably has the um, the least chance for um, a work uh, an RB1 workload than any of them. But the thing that I think he has is the best chance for high-end efficiency among all of them. So I almost feel like that workload ceiling is mitigated by just him being more efficient with his touches. Plus, the investment was strong enough. Now, they were, the investment was strong for all of these players. But the investment's strong enough and the, the speak about him, uh, you know, GM saying that, um, that he's a three-down back and he's looked great in camp and all this stuff. It feels like Dobbins is going to have a role in year one. And really, it's kind of a, a 2021 play as well, which I know you've done in a dynasty league that we're together uh, in as well, that I could keep Dobbins for 25 and Miles Sanders for 36. So that's a total of $61 for what could be two high-end running back ones in 2021. Now, that's a possibility. Ingram's a free agent after this year. He's 31. Um, he's due for major touchdown regression. And the other thing is Gus Edwards and Justice Hill combined for, I think it was 206 touches. I can't imagine that they're going to invest in J.K. Dobbins and not give him a majority of that that workload there. Is Gus Edwards going away? No. You're 100% right on that. It's a great, great call. Um, they just use too many running backs. Justice Hill is yeah, going I away. Think you're, I think you're probably right. Um, but the, the exciting thing about Dobbins is that they invested in him despite having a, an affection for their previous running backs or their, their current running backs. And I think the upside warrants uh, a pretty aggressive market value there. So that's where we got with, with Dobbins. Uh, I ended up with, with two rookie running backs. Jeff ended up with three. Um, and then I actually ended up with two others later in the draft. And so I, I took A.J. Dillon uh, to Jabron's chagrin for $5. Jib wanted him as his handcuff. He, like I said before, he kept Aaron Jones. Um, I got A.J. Dillon for $5. And I actually feel really good about it because I think Dillon has kind of like I thought about James Conner in what was it, 2018. Uh, I got him for two dollars in our first auction, and I was like, "This is a this is a major keeper play here because it's very unlikely Le'Veon Bell returns to the Steelers in 2019, and then I get the RB one for a team that wants to use an RB one um, for seven dollars." So with with Dylan, 
I feel a kind of a similar situation where Jones has not been re-signed or has not been um, extended yet. He's had issues in the past staying healthy, off the field issues. Um, and it doesn't feel like the Packers really want to invest in him, especially when they go and get a running back when they have all these other needs uh, in the second round. And so Dylan is kind of like baby Derrick Henry. I feel great about that profile, even though he lacks uh, you know, a great receiving profile on a team that just saw their RB1 score 19 touchdowns. So Dylan's kind of an interesting player that I'm happy to have on the bench. And then I ended up with Miko Hardman for $3. That's a very cheap share of the Kansas City offense. Obviously, I've already double-tapped that with Clyde and, and Mahomes. And so if something happens to Tyreek or if he overtakes Sammy Watkins for the number two role, Hardman could be a great value at three, not banking on it. Lastly, the last guy I'll talk about here, I got a couple other end-of-bench guys, Damian Harris for $1, Jeff. I want to get your thoughts on Damian Harris because he has been a massive riser in the last few weeks as Sony Michelle has been out. He's now apparently back. I think this today would be his third day of practice. Damian Harris, obviously a, a rookie last year, barely saw any action, um, but he's got a three-down profile. We know how lucrative the New England backfield can be, and I honestly think, Jeff, if there is a running back that takes over the lead rushing role in New England, at this point, I would bet it's Damian Harris. that I have my rankings reflecting that. And I'd also bet that they could have more production than in any year or at least close to the top years of Brady because of the Cam Newton effect on the running game. What are your thoughts on Damian Harris for $1 or just as overall as a player? Oh, yeah, for a dollar to steal. I mean, I, he was one of my like late cheap guys I was targeting as well. So we're in lockstep there. Um, I really think it's between him and yeah. James White for who's going to be the like fantasy leader in that backfield this year. I, I mean, I think Michelle is mostly like toast at this point. Um, sounds like he's back at practice, yep. so maybe. But like, I Harris, like, I really didn't even think the gap between Jacobs and Harris pre-draft last year was I agree. that big to be like two, a two-round, two-round difference. Um, and the fact that Jacobs has like come out and already established himself as a top ten, like arguably a top ten pure rusher in the league, and it's like okay, it didn't really sound like there was that big of a gap between him and Harris. Certainly, um, you know bodes well for him and the fact that he could definitely be the lead rusher in that backfield. Um, and I, I mean, I think he definitely could be like a um, mid range RB two this year, especially like if cam kind of returns to form, there's good touchdown uh, equity. Um, you know, the, the reason he might not pan out is if Michelle does come back and is serviceable, he could steal, you know, another five carries per game. James White gets the receiving work. Rex Burkhead is still there and just ends up being crowded. And like you're just not able to kind of rely on him week to week. But if he does just establish himself as clearly the best rusher and then White is the receiving back and it's basically those two, I, I mean, I think you could, you know, you're right on with Cam opening up the run lanes the same way that Lamar does. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's possible if it's just uh, Damian Harris and James White, they could both be RB2s this year. So at their price, especially, I mean, a dollar is free in this. Right. Like, um, you know, it's a very good pick. Thank you. And I, I completely agree with you because I actually have James White ranked two spots higher than Damian Harris. I have, I have James White currently at RB32 and Damian Harris at RB34. And I'm being aggressive on Harris, and I think I'm pretty fair on White. And the reason that I like White a little bit more is just because he's obviously an established player in this offense. We know what he's done year in and year out. Obviously, new quarterback.
But this is the thing. His skill set's pretty similar to Christian McCaffrey. Like, obviously, McCaffrey's probably, the, you know, almost definitely the best running back in the game. Um, James White is not in that conversation. But in terms of being an exceptional route running running back, James White fits that skill set. And Christian McCaffrey in Carolina with Cam Newton as a starter averaged 119 targets, 94 catches, over 750 yards, and five and a half touchdowns in two Cam-led years. Now, I'm not necessarily saying James White's going to do that, but I don't think he's going to like go away and wither into nothingness because Tom Brady's no longer there. I think James White is going to be uh, an easy guy for Cam Newton to get used to in that offense. And then on the other side, Damian Harris, I think we've seen how lucrative the the lead role in New England can be. Uh, so I feel good about being aggressive on both of those players and very low on Sony Michelle, the newly added Lamar Miller, and Rex Burkhead, who is always floating around. Um, it's it's just, you know, not someone I'm willing to invest in. So, um, sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the other thing, like the bull case for James White as well is – the receiving weapons in this offense are not very good. Uh, I mean, Julian Edelman's what, 33, 34? Health has become a little bit of a question. Very like, true. Two rookie tight ends, I think. Nikhil Harry still is struggling in camp. Like, it's, I mean, I think it's actually possible, like, kind of how we've talked about in Cleveland, where Chubb is the back and uh, Kareem Hunt is lying up in the slot as the wide receiver three. I wouldn't be shocked to see two running back sets in New England this year, something similar, or, you know, maybe you just line them both up in the backfield. So you just don't tip your hand if you know, you're handing it off to Harris or swing pass to white or something. And uh, with uh, their offensive line coach, who's like a legend, Dante Scarinaccia. Uh, Scarinaccia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, anyone's uh, knows us for a while, they know that I suck at pronouncing things on occasion. So, <laughs> I mean, absolute like legend with the offensive line coach. And I mean, they had one year without him in the past and they went, you know, the offensive line just plummeted. So there's, now there's a risk that the offensive line is not what it's been. So they look to, especially, you know, with Cam's health, they're looking for quicker passes, get the ball out and protect him. You can see a lot of swing passes or like short outs with, you know, short routes with White. So um, yeah, I think with White's role really being established, the potential for being, one of the leading receiving weapons in the game. Like, yeah, I think having him ranked above Harris is definitely the right process. Uh, wouldn't be surprised to see Harris outscore him though, but because of kind of like that secured role, um, you know, I think there's room for both of them on a fantasy roster, just not both on one roster. Yeah, that's fair. Um, good stuff. The the way I rounded out my, my roster there after it was, I, um, I'm not a believer in drafting kickers or defenses. If you're going to eventually stream them, there's no point in uh, investing draft equity in them unless there is a really compelling case for an early season hot start. Jeff has made good cases for that in the past, so I give him a Pittsburgh pass. Pittsburgh Steelers opened the season against uh, Danny Dimes, who had, what, 18 fumbles last year, and then Drew Locke. Um, I accidentally paid $3 for them. I meant to just bid two when they were at one, but someone kind of hit bid right before me, and I... It's too slow or too quick, but I'm not mad about it. When you're investing a significant amount in a defense or a kicker because you think season long they're going to be great, well, this is what you're going to do. You're going to either have to roster two of them at a time when if you want to keep that player from a buy. Like if you're going to invest in a player, you should never be willing to drop them on their bye week. And so that's the way I look at it. So instead of drafting either, I ended up just taking Curtis Samuel with the rest of my budget and then Ryquel Armstead. 
Uh, Samuel has a, an enticing package and skill set. Um, there's a ton of uncertainty. We saw him pigeonholed into a, a high air yard, low uh, catch rate role last year. We think Robbie Anderson is going to take more of that, and Curtis Samuel will be at better use for his skill set. Um, not relying on him um, by any means, but uh, I think is a really interesting prospect. And then Ryquell Armstead, I've been very vocal about uh, my flip from a Leonard Fournette truther last year, which I, I think volume wise paid off. It didn't efficiency and everything else didn't. Um, but if I think that Leonard Fournette is not going to be good this year and is going to be traded or cut, um, then Ryquell Armstead fits the mold of the player that would be his heir. And I think that's because he might actually be a better runner. I mean, this is operating off a very small sample, but he's an interesting guy. I think if, if Fournette is cut or traded sometime this season, then Rockwell Armstead assumes a majority of his workload while Chris Thompson um, assumes a lot of the receiving work. And then Rockwell Armstead for $2, um, you know, Jags offense is nothing to be thrilled about in terms of uh, a, a early down runner, but they did stay committed to Leonard Fournette despite um, trailing a lot last year. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a share of someone that I wanted to get um, and and has interesting keeper appeal later. So anyway, Jeff, um, before we move on to like best values and worst values, um, I wanted to touch real quick on the wide receiver tier that includes guys like DK Metcalf, Terry McLaurin, AJ Brown, Marquise Brown, Maybe you could throw Robert Woods in there. I think he's a little bit above them. Same with Terry. Um, versus the running back tier that includes guys like David Johnson, Leonard Fournette, Le'Veon Bell, Melvin Gordon. Um, I want to get your analysis on this. I think we're in lockstep on this, but it is my opinion that it is very, very worthwhile to take your shots on that wide receiver tier that I mentioned and, it, and also to avoid that running back tier, which feels like volume-driven RB2 values that are all in some ways threatened versus what people are expecting uh, them to get. Do you agree in, the, in that sentiment? Uh, yeah, for the most part. Um, like that's a really solid wide receiver tier. I mean, you can even get like DJ Moore in the third round a lot of times. So... Or some sometimes I've seen Allen Robinson's like a mid third round pick. He's been moving up now a lot lately, but um, it depends on the context of your league you're in. In a lot sharper group, it might be you kind of might have to get uh, even reach a little bit for running back. Like in a more home league setting, I think it's safe to go and hit the um, like hit your receiver round three, maybe even round four, and like there's a good chance you could get DeAndre Swift or Cam Akers in round like end of round four or round five depending on where you're drafting or even better um, in my opinion i much prefer to target like a kareem hunt or jk dobbins even around later uh guys who have a share of their uh, see i disagree i disagree there because i for for dobbins and kareem hunt you're still banking really on like an injury or I don't think so. in the case of i think their ceiling is predicated on an injury but they have they have established roles Right, but like Swift and Akers are more or less going to be the lead back in the backfield from day one. Um, there's, I guess Akers is maybe a little banked up, but nothing serious. But like they are already established as the lead back in their roles and should be able to provide like at a minimum solid RB2 value from the gate with RB1 upside without anything happening to another back on the team. For Dobbins and for Kareem Hunt, for them to hit RB1 upside, like you need an injury to Chubb or Ingram. 
like you you don't need to bank on that for um swift and acres so like they have the, a much better floor ceiling combo than either one of that like you know with the ups with the competitive advantage that you get is much better to take one of them at like, the four or five assuming they are there than it is to wait and get cream hunter dobbins and kind of just be gambling on that they actually pan out of the season yeah, I, th- I think the way I look at it is that when you don't take one of those guys at the 4-5, you could still end up with one of those wide receivers that I was talking about. You could en- end up with maybe a, a falling DK Metcalf or DJ Chark or someone like that. And then the the appeal, I think, with Kareem Hunt, the reason I have him ranked aggressively is obviously we've already mentioned the upside in the event that Nick Chubb gets injured. But, I mean, it's, it's, different if it's, it's a different coach. It's Kevin Stefanski, so we don't necessarily know exactly how they're going to deploy Hunt versus Chubb. But... Hunt, when he once he came off suspension last year, was on pace for 74 catches, 928 total yards, and six touchdowns, and he had 60% of the snaps. That's not like a handcuff. Hunt has viability if he maintains a semblance of that workload. Plus, um, you know, we've already talked about early in the season that the target concentration in Cleveland is not going to be very spread out. It's going to be mainly Hunt because Chubb just doesn't get that much receiving work, which is a shame. Um, Hooper, OBJ, and Jarvis Landry. And so I see... Hunt having appeal as a, a RB2 flex type um, on a weekly basis and yet has that monster, monster upside as Chubb Insurance. And then with Dobbins, we've already talked about him, but I think that it's a similar case where he has utility on a weekly basis with what we expect him to have as like a baseline volume um, and then upside for more. Whereas when we're talking about DeAndre Swift, obviously he was my RB1 in this class. He has amazing pass catching abilities, really well-rounded player. Um, it's just that, Patricia historically, I know we've we've already talked about this offline a little bit, has employed a running back by committee. All they talk about is is saving players. We saw this with with Carryon Johnson, who had a very similar investment. It wasn't that they handed over the keys to him, and then they probably felt justified in not wanting to do that when Carryon Johnson ends up on IR his first two years in the season. It's tough to say. Like Patricia historically has when he's only been a head coach for two years. And but it's also the so you're just uh, you're the going GM. after a very small s- sample size. And then the other thing too is like, Patricia's probably coaching for his uh, his position this year. Like That's if, very true. If the Lions don't do well, I mean, I don't. So he's probably gone. So like in two ways, like um, I, or I guess there's three things. One, Swift is a far better player than Carryon Johnson. Uh, and Johnson has like even Karen Johnson has even said he doesn't view himself as being capable of a bell cow workload. So that's part of the reason that um, he, he probably just never got it. Is he just he straight up said I can't handle 20, 25 touches per game. So it, um, if they don't make the playoffs, like you know, um, Patricia can't afford to just quote save Swift for the playoffs when he needs to like basically make the playoffs to save his job. If they really just wanted a running back to be in a committee again, I don't think they would have spent up another, um, you know, high draft capital in the early second round to get one of the top running backs, if not the best, the best running back in the class, depending on your evaluation, um, just to split a workload with another back who has been disappointed, disappointing you for back-to-back seasons. Uh, if that was your plan, was to just have a share the workload and go committee with carry on Johnson um, and just not, you know, overtax him and get his touches down to 10 to 15 per game. You spend like around three or four pick on, you know, get Zach Moss in the third round or Josh Kelly. You don't get the uh, number one or two running back in the class with that high of a draft investment. 
So, well, unfortunately, that's what they did with on Johnson, right? They had yeah. they they drafted him around the same spot as Swift. They Swift drafted Swift a little bit earlier in the second round, uh, and then they proceeded to make on Johnson a, like criminally underused. Now, obviously, we kind of know maybe that was for the best because he's ended up injured, but. Um, and, and Johnson just wasn't as good as Swift either. He isn't. You're 100%. No, I completely agree with your evaluation. I have Swift one spot behind J.K. Dobbins um, in, in terms of fantasy ranks, and I had Swift way ahead of Dobbins in terms of prospect ranks for this class. So I agree with you. With you. I just think that I'm not necessarily ready to say Swift uh, escapes a running back by committee in Detroit, even though I think it's a really good offense. Um, and I also just think that Dobbins' scheme, even if, if he – like. I think Dobbins has potentially a higher floor maybe because the scheme is so safe and they're going to run so much um, from a running perspective. I think he also is going to get an okay amount of receiving work, but you and I also talked about that Swift is going is a really, really good receiving back better than Dobbins. And if he were to get a sizable chunk of that receiving work, then his floor is probably higher on a weekly basis than Dobbins. So I, I don't disagree with you on what you're saying. I just don't have much separation. If he's getting five catches a game, Swift, that is, in that's 25 rushing yards that he, like, as a bonus, he gets over Dobbins, not to mention the, like, the more efficiency efficient. of those. Yeah, exactly. The efficiency of those is even better. So it's like, you know, if he's averaging, say, seven yards per catch and five catches, then, like, Dobbins basically needs to add, like, you know, like, two yards per carry for like six carries or seven carries to make that up. Yeah, I hear you. Um, all right, so let, let's shift over now to just talk about some of the values that we saw in our draft and maybe analyze why those players went for lower, but why we think they're values. And then we'll go into a little bit of the overpay section. Um, who who comes to mind first when I say a value in our draft this year, Jeff? Uh, Joe Mixon at $49, I think was a good pick. Um, you know, he went, like we talked about earlier, he basically went $20 cheaper than that very top tier of running backs and mm-hmm. $10 cheaper than Clyde Edwards Hilaire. And, um, I mean, I think that was, I think that was a good pick for Austin, especially since he had Michael Thomas locked in. He has like the number one receiver and a very good running back who like if the Bengals offense takes a really good step forward with Joey Burrow, uh, I mean, he could be basically this year's Dalvin Cook. Yeah, I think uh, I, I'm, I'm a buyer in Mixon as well. I think the talent's there. I think the offensive line gets better. And we also saw in the second half of last year that he got enormous volume and was actually really good despite the catastrophe that was the Bengals offense. Um, you add in a much better quarterback, albeit a rookie, um, and you add in their first-round pick from last year, Jonah Williams, to man the left tackle spot. I just think that Mixon, if he were to assume any semblance of like a real receiving role in that offense – he's going to absolute rocket ship. So I agree with you. He was a guy that I was targeting um, potentially as like a second tier RB one. And I actually have him ranked at RB seven right now, um, right behind Clyde and Miles Sanders. Some people are going to think that's a little too high, but um, I think the upside warrants it considering there's a decent chance that Burrow treats him like Clyde Edwards Hilaire. Now it's assuming a little bit, but Burrow was very comfortable throwing to Clyde Edwards Hilaire. He set records as a receiving running back in the SEC last year. Um, I think there's a chance that, that that Mixon elevates his receiving ceiling this year, in addition to being a continuing to be a great rusher. Um, I like that. Who who else is someone that you that stood out to you as a value? Uh, can I say DK Metcalf, even though we already talked about him? I do someone else. I mean, we already talked about. Him. <laughs> I, I agree with you though, that he is a that he is a 
of value. Uh, I actually like digs for 12. Um, like, I mean, that's like 64th player off the board ballpark. Um, I mean, I think it's, so I think that's good value, especially seeing reports out of camp with how well he and Josh have gelled. Um, uh, there's a little bit of risk there, but again, for like $12, I think there's a decent enough chance that he outperforms his quote ADP or, you know, cost. Um, and has, you know, it should have, I mean, John Brown had the second best four in fantasy for receivers. Last yeah. Year he was amazing. Michael Thomas. Amazingly like, consistent. Sec- so make, and Diggs is a much better player than John Brown. Now, you know, you're kind of div- dividing up the targets now between more people with the addition of Diggs. But uh, I think the offense, the total offensive volume, I think could increase this year as well. So for Diggs, uh, basically to potentially to step in, take John Brown's floor and elevate that ceiling. Uh, I think that's like a really good value. And looking at like some of the guys who went around him, like, you know, Rager went for more, he went for the same as Fuller, a little bit more than Gallup and Landry and Edelman, like just looking at the other receivers around him, like, Diggs, I would easily take over, maybe except for Fuller, just because I love Fuller's ceiling. But um, like I would take him at that cost over the other receivers in that group. That's a good call. And I actually, I have Diggs ranked, I would say above consensus. I'm not positive, but I haven't ranked as my wide receiver 27 in, in my tier six wide receivers right behind Tyler Boyd. Um, he's an elite wide receiver. He's one of the best, if not the best route runners in the NFL. And he also saw 94 targets last year, whereas John Brown saw 115 as the wide receiver one for the Bills. I think you and I both hope and expect a at least a little leap for Josh Allen in year three. Um, this offense has only gotten better. They invested a lot in him by trading their first round pick for him. I think Diggs being a volatile player in 2020 is not a given. Um, whereas, you know, people would say, oh, he's volatile last year. And Josh Allen. Well, Josh Allen made, like you said, uh, John Brown, one of the most consistent players in the league last year. And now Stephon Diggs assumes that role. Now he doesn't have the rapport with his quarterback. His quarterback may or may not be very good. Um, so I, I like that that call, and I love the value that he got for him. Um, sure. And I have I have one more pick. Yeah. Uh, Christian Kirk went for $3, which is a steal. Um, I think he's going to, as long as he's able to stay healthy, uh, I think he's going to ball out there um it's that slot absorbing a bunch of targets you know he kind of had like a little mix of outside inside last year just because there was like they didn't have any outside receivers in arizona it's a new offense and he got hurt um so now that you have hopkins comfortably able to take the outside role christian kirk inside in the slot um i think he is just going to be a ppr magnet and for three dollars i think that's a fantastic value yeah i've got a few for you um Number one is actually a player that I recognize that I'm like pretty low on, and that's Cooper Cup. Um, I'm not a huge Cup stand by any means. I have him at the top of my wide receiver five tier, right at wide receiver 18. I've actually seen people rank him lower, so I'm not like crazy and not liking Cup. But I have I have Woods four spots ahead of of Cup or three spots ahead of him, and I think that they're pretty close. I just prefer Woods. I think he has a higher weekly floor, uh, less ceiling, but also more certainty than cup does especially with the the kind of the shift we saw in the second half of last year in the the rams offense um woods went for 29 which i think is fine i actually like that value but cup went for 23 that feels like a little cheap 
uh, for a player that we saw be, I think he was a wide receiver two overall in the first half last year, uh, or at least you know over some sample, maybe it was the first six weeks. I can't quite remember. But Cups, like that's a value for Brett. Um, so kudos to Brett. I'm not a big fan of that player, but it's not like he paid like in the 30s for him, which I would have hated. Um, so so good job, Brett, on that. Um, and then another guy that I loved was Joe Aronson getting Cam Newton for one dollar. He also got Matt Stafford for one dollar, which deserves recognition as well. But when we're talking about late round quarterbacks that have top five upside, a la you know Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes, which we basically both did in back to back years, he got Cam Newton for one dollar, and I'm a buyer in Cam in New England this year. So I thought that was a great value by Joe. I would have bid him if I didn't already invest sixteen in Mahomes. Um, so kudos to you, Joe. That was a good pick. And I mean, in Stafford. Stafford was a top five quarterback before he got hurt last year as well. Oh yeah. So, oh yeah. I mean, like, yeah, that's why the late round strategy, like both of those guys could be top five or, you know, you just rotate them depending on the matchup and easily get top five value out of the two of them without putting out like any investment almost. Right. And now keep this in mind, Joe got those two players for $2 and Jib got Aaron Rodgers for three. Now, Jib also got Devontae Adams for 55, so the stack elevates Rodgers' appeal. But to me, there's no, no question which side of that I'd rather have. Um, Jeff, I want to shift over to Devin's uh, draft pick of Melvin Gordon for $16. Now, Devin got some flack because he saved so much money for so long. But I honestly think Melvin Gordon at $16 might be one of the best values we, we see across all running backs in this draft. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a really good pick. I mean, just looking at like the ranking of players, I mean, that's like 50th most expensive. So we're talking almost like, you know, just kind of order things like a snake. You're talking about getting him like fourth or late fourth, fifth round pick, like compared to he's going like the third round. And you look at like Todd Gurley went for 32, uh, Le'Veon Bell 27, like, so he basically he's in that same tier as all those guys, and he got him for a fraction of the price. So yeah, I'm not on Gordon that much, but for sixteen dollars, yeah, I don't mind that pick at all. Exactly. I mean, I have him right in the same tier as David Johnson, who went for thirty-two. Todd Gurley went for thirty-two, also to Devin. So to me, that was one of Devin's best picks. Uh, it was a great value, and it bakes in all the risk of a running back committee um, that could be present in Denver, but still leaves so much room for upside if Gordon gets a stranglehold on that workload. Uh, and then also has keeper appeal if he blows up and Drew Locke is actually the truth. And then he can keep Melvin Gordon for 21 next year as a borderline RB1 if that all pans out. So good job, Devin, on that one. Um, so in terms of overpays, the first one um, that it, it it's not necessarily... I recognize that I am below consensus on DeAndre Hopkins in 2020. I have been very vocal all offseason that I want players, and I'm going to rate them higher if they have established rapport with their quarterback and they already have an established role in their offense. DeAndre Hopkins has neither of those. Mark got DeAndre Hopkins for $47. Um, I think that is one of the picks that I like the least at that value, considering Joe Mixon went for 49 Adam Thielen went for 32 Allen Robinson went for 35, like $47 for DeAndre Hopkins. I was nowhere near that valuation. And I recognize that I could be wrong. DeAndre Hopkins could shrug off that historical precedent that um, wide receiver ones face when they change teams and quarterbacks. 
but I don't see this volume-driven player, who's obviously really good, but he's a volume-driven player, establishing quick enough rapport with Kyler Murray to warrant that price in the first half of the season. Especially with Hopkins is missing camp time right now with kind of just like a minor injury. So you're basically just stepping onto the field week one with like very limited reps with Kyler. You're 100% right. Now, Mark also did get the Kyler stack. I think he paid a little bit much for $11 um, for Kyler. I don't think that bakes in like, like for instance, people are saying Kyler's the next Lamar. Well, when you're pricing at Lamar, $3 last year in our draft and then Kyler at 11 this year, they're not, it's, it's apples to oranges. It's not, you know, the investment doesn't match the, uh, the, the risk reward profile. Yeah. And as good as Kyler is as a runner, like Lamar is just in a world of his own. Yeah. When we had JJ on, I think I spotted Kyler 350 yards and he still took Lamar on the rushing line. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we won't give Mark too much more of a hard time, but that's not a pick that I love by any means. Um, Jeff, who's someone that stands out as an egregious overpay? I don't know if it's egregious, but like literally right below Hopkins is Mike Evans for 46. Mm. Um, I just think the value of paying up for part of it is I just don't think the value is there for paying that high up for a receiver, especially when you see, like we said, Robinson go for twelve, $11 cheaper, Thielen for $13 cheaper. Um, you know what I mean? And Evans was very volatile last year. He was basically giving you like wide receiver one or bust. Um, it's possible that Brady smooths things out a little bit more. Um, it's also possible that like it's Godwin and it's Gronk and it's um, Evans. So, I mean, OJ Howard, maybe like, I don't know. I, I feel like the, the consistency isn't quite going to be there for Evans. And the, I mean, the week to week ceiling is going to be there. I don't think the season long ceiling is necessarily as high. Um, so, just considering all things considered, I just don't like paying up that much for him. Um, especially, like I said, there's a lot better values coming up shortly. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I mean, I have Terry McLaurin one spot ahead of Mike Evans and, um, and and Cooper Cup one spot behind him. So 16, 17, 18, McLaurin went for 23, Cooper Cup went for 23, and Mike Evans went for 46, which is the total of the two. So there's no question that I agree with you that that is way higher than I would have paid for Mike Evans. Um, now, I've also recognized with Tampa Bay that I'm a little bearish on um, on Brady and Mike Evans. I like Godwin this year. I have him at wide receiver five because I just think he fits and he's a really, really damn good player as we've discussed a lot. Um, I'm also pretty bearish on Gronk. So uh, I recognize that I could be wrong on thinking that this offense might not be as high powered as people think, but or might run more through the run game. Um, but it is what it is. It's not even remotely close to what I would have paid for Evans. If he was sitting around like maybe early 30s, I'd maybe take a stab just for that weekly wide receiver one overall upside. But um, I mean, he went for $4 less than Tyreek Hill, uh, $14 more than Amari Cooper for 32. So I agree with you there. Um, Jeff, who's another player that you think maybe went for too much in this draft? Uh, Jalen Ragor. <laughs> well, I, mean, I like I like Ragor a ton. Um, you know, he, he was my wide receiver too this year, right behind CeeDee Lamb, and you gave me a ton of shit for it. No, and no, I think no, no. I think the landing spot was really you gave me shit for. It. You were calling me a hater all all. It was uh, not about Ragor. It was about your discussion about Judy. We don't have to rehash <laughs> it, but 
I'm with you um, on, on loving Rhaegar, obviously. Okay, yeah. So obviously I'm on the record of being a Rhaegar guy. And I think he is going to smash at some point. Absolutely. Uh, I think paying up that much for him and kind of in the context of, I, I think your just roster build was a little fragile. So if, um, as was, um, so, I mean, I, I, and I, there's a lot of uncertainty there in regards to timing. Uh, and which, what I mean by that is like, so let's take Derrick Henry, for example. You were a huge Derrick Henry guy. And you were like, you've been, you were on him for like three years. And very confident in your talent evaluation. But things just weren't clicking. And then last year, he finally just smashes the way you thought he was going to smash. Right. Like you were... So you were right on your talent evaluation. You were just early right. from like a fancy standpoint. So, and then of course there's other times when you're wrong, like generally we're wrong. Like Leonard Fournette, just yeah, for your specific as an example. So looking at like Regor, I mean, we're both pretty confident in the talent. Um, we could also be wrong. It doesn't sound like it based on the reports out of camp. We could be right. wrong, but then, so first we have to be right on talent and then we have to be right on timing. Uh, the situation does look pretty good from a timing perspective, but I mean, there's still Zach Ertz, there's still Dallas Goddard, Deshaun Jackson is still there. Um, maybe there's a chance that Arstega Whiteside ends up being like, okay, or he's stealing, poaching a couple touchdowns. So the way I just look at thing at that perspective is, we have to be right in two ways with these young guys and rookies that you have to be right on the talent evaluation and you have to be right on timing. So paying up that much, um, especially like looking at some other players, like I say, say you could have got, you know, Diggs, Fuller, Gallup, Landry, they're like a similar yep. price where we know the talent is there. I mean, there's some other you know, reasons there at that cost, but like, you right. know, the talent is there. And you you don't really you know the timing like situation is there that um, I just think that that is a little bit of a rich price tag when you kind of have to gamble on a couple of things. So yeah. I mean that's my opinion. Like I, I see the bold case for him absolutely. Like I may have said there's a reason I was so high on him. Right. It's just that um, you know except you, there's um, a downside there, and even if like. We're even like right on this. Let's say we're right on this year, but it's week nine when he breaks out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it means you've just kind of waited, and which is what happens with rookies. Like say like AJ Brown last year. Um, it, it happens with rookies too. Like okay, they break out second half of the year, but at that point you've already kind of you already dug yourself into a hole if you're waiting on him to fill a starting roster spot that you. you it might be too late or maybe you've already tried to move on and trade him for someone who's established. So I mean, that's just kind of my philosophy, especially with like rookie receivers. You're hundred percent right. I, uh, I, I completely recognize that it's above market value. That's what I said when I was going through the, the roster construction as well and what I paid and it was more so securing a guy I felt was great and not necessarily saying he's going to be worth $13. He's going to be worth like twice that or, you know, I don't necessarily know exactly what's going to happen with Regor. But what I consider to be the ceiling, and actually I want to go back to Deshaun Jackson as well because you alluded to him earlier. Deshaun Jackson was one of my priority best ball targets last year. I felt like he was a great late-round pick in, in redraft leagues. 
Um, and he absolutely dominated week one. He, I think he put up 154 yards on nine targets, eight catches, and then two touchdowns as the number one wide receiver for Carson Wentz and the downfield stretcher. Then he gets hurt. Then he got, I think, one target in two games the rest of the season or something like that. Um, the point is, Jalen Ragor should assume that type of role and opportunity as the the investment would warrant, um, the rave reviews would warrant, and yet um, I don't think that that is. I, I mean, thirteen is a lot. Like that, what would that be? I guess maybe around like an eighth round pick, seventh round pick um, in redraft. But I'm totally fine taking Ragor there. I want to be aggressively pricing him. Um, I think that we've seen rookie wide receivers, obviously not necessarily in this. Uh, exact situation with COVID shortened off season and all that. Um, rookie wide receivers have done more and or have done a lot in recent years. We see AJ Brown second half. Terry McLaurin was basically a stud from the get go. DJ Chark, similar thing. That I feel pretty good that Jalen Rager. No, could Chark was out. the second year breakout. You're right, second year breakout. You're right. He didn't even, barely even play in rookie year. Um, but yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. So that's fair. Um, any other uh, picks that you want to bring up here, Jeff? I, you know, there's a couple others that I think are maybe not necessarily questionable, but guy like AJ Green for nine dollars. Um, I have Jalen Rigor much higher ranked than AJ Green. Nine dollars, I guess, is okay considering the upside. Um, and then you know, there's a couple other like Brian. I think some head scratchers. I really like Zach Moss as a prospect, but he paid eight dollars for the potential handcuff for Devin Singletary, and then eight dollars for. Singletary is the handcuff for Moss, so it's <laughs> fine. I, I, um, but it's more so that he he paid sixteen dollars for Latavius Murray and and uh, Zach Moss combined when he already had Devin Singletary and Alvin Kamara. What are your thoughts on that? Um, he wanted to handcuff them for the whole COVID situation. It's like okay, if Kamara comes down with COVID Saturday night, he can just plug in Murray. Um, that was, I'm assuming that's kind of his philosophy. That's just not how I'd rather build. Like on these, like, okay, if Deandre Swift gets diagnosed with COVID, I can plug in cam makers. Like, right, 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 right. You know, that type. So like, uh, and it really just kind of caps your upside in my opinion. Um, you know, I don't really think there were any egregious overpays this year. I think maybe part of that is that top like tier of backs and receivers just juiced out a lot more money than usual. Um, I mean, I say like I even overpaid a little bit for Devontae Adams. Like, well, at that point, it was like I said, a big tear break from Adams down to the rest of the receivers. That Devontae like, Parker. Whatever, like, yeah, Devontae Parker. I mean, they're both good receivers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Parker has the better quarterback at this point. Um, so, I mean, yeah, like, I overpaid a little bit for Parker. But there was a nice tear break afterwards and i also had saved election money that i was kind of like got and got a little bit bored and was like four white claws deep so <laughs> <laughs> but like i just look at like yeah, in the context of my roster it was a fine pick so um yeah but like i really don't think anyone was like that egregious of um a price this year i think that, you know from a roster building standpoint you can obviously nitpick people but I mean, it's tough, and sometimes you know, just in auction draft, things don't quite go according to plan, and you just have to make Adjust. adjustments. Exactly. And maybe you don't get the exact roster construction you need, but like the pieces are there where you got value, then you can make a couple of trades and get a good team that you like come week one, or yeah. you know, in injury or breakout happens, and all of a sudden week three or four, you're like, oh, okay, this is actually all falling into place. Right. 
I, th- I think on, on Brian's team, um, if you look at it in a vacuum, he gets Latavius Murray, James White, Matt Breida, Zach Moss uh, as like depth running backs. And I love all of those players. I'm above all, well, maybe not Murray, but I recognize the value in Murray that if Kamara is out, that Murray is like a, almost a top five running back um, if he gets that full workload. Like Latavius Murray balled out i think it was only in two games last year but he started two times over an injured kamara he averaged 24 carries seven catches nine targets 154 yards and two touchdowns that's averages over two games so it's small sample but we know latavius murray's like an elite handcuff so i'm okay with that um and then i also really like james white and matt Breida. i'm above consensus on both i'm pricing them aggressively and then zach moss same exact thing i think we're all we're in we're in lockstep there I think this just goes to a, a broader conversation about should you handcuff your own players? And I've talked to a lot of people about that recently. A lot of people have asked me, um, one of our buddies, Jack, um, he has asked me, like, should, you know, have you ever thought about like cornering this backfield? And basically in the past, I would have because I feel like I'm locking in the RB1 in a great offense or something like that. But the problem is when you do that, you cap your upside, like you said. And rather, I'd rather have like maybe like a Camara and then uh, a Chase Edmonds who went for eight dollars as well, rather than Camara and and Latavius Murray. Because what if Chase Edmonds goes off or Kenny Drake gets hurt or something? Then you have two guys that are worth that rather than two guys worth one role. So that's I think the general philosophy that people should be taking with regard to handcuffs. Get other people's handcuffs because that's how you really maximize your value rather than securing a floor. And when you secure a floor in fantasy, you're not really playing to win. You're playing not to lose. And it's not saying get the most volatile team you possibly can for the chance that you may p- maybe put up like 250 points one week and you're okay with a 50-point dud. That's not the point. Point is, over a season, uh, over you know a long season, you want to be able to maximize your chances of having a championship-caliber roster um, by the end or at least you know um, towards the playoffs. Because if you handcuff all of your players – and maybe that offense isn't what you expect, like sometimes happens with with our evaluations, um, or something happens to the quarterback and everyone's value gets depressed. Then you are limiting your upside and you're you're um, consolidating your risk to certain offenses. So uh, I think that's a a good conversation to have. Now it's a little messier with regards to Brian's team, just because he gets guys that I like, just happens to be handcuffing his own players. But that's fine. Um, I also think he gets a value with Adam Thielen. I thought OBJ for 37 was a good pick. So, Brian, no sweat off your back. You did well. Um, any other thoughts on, on our draft, Jeff? No, I think we really hammered everything. Um, I guess the one thing that kind of surprised me is that Kittle and Kelsey did not go for quite as much as I was expecting. Mm-hmm. I was ex- you know, kind of expecting him to push $40 the way those – like receivers, like the way you see him in a draft, like how, um, would have kind of started him closer to $40, like the 31, 34, 35 that they went for, um, which in the future might be good to know, like planning things out, like, okay, like Kittle is kind of fair value should be like, let's, let's just say 2021 it's like Kittle's fair value should be 37. Um, based on like how our league operated last year he might go for seems more like he goes for 32. So you might want to plan your roster. Like, okay. I, there's a good chance I can get him for a value, even though 
spending up for a tight end like that isn't really my philosophy. It's still also a value pick. Yeah, I, um, I agree with you. I mean, last time that Kelsey was on the open market, he went for 22. So to go up to 34 is definitely a correction in the right direction in terms of value. Or Sorry, he went for 35 in this draft. Uh, definitely a correction in the right direction um, in terms of his fair value. I think it was interesting. I budgeted around 30, maybe up to 35 for both players. So I think it was actually spot on in terms of valuation. Problem was I took Clyde Edwards-Hilaire for 58 in my first pick. And that just kind of, if I were to go after one of those elite tight ends, then I really would have um, handcuffed myself. I probably wouldn't have been able to get a guy like Dobbins, um, wouldn't have been able to spend up for Regor and you know, maybe wouldn't have bid a 24 for DJ Chark. So things would have definitely ended up differently. Um, but alas, you live and you learn, right? So, man, I, I almost hopped in on that um, Kittle pricing. Yep. No, I think that's one of the things where kind of like auction nomination order gets kind of messes and stuff. So I don't think I had anybody on my team aside from the keepers at that point. Like, let's say I had locked in DJ Moore for 25 first. And they're like, oh, wow, I just got like some really good value here. Right, right. I would have felt more comfortable. Like, okay, I can put 32 on Kittle right now. Um, you know, and then, yeah. So, I, I mean, that's just, you know, how the draft goes. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, would I have rather had Kittle for 32 instead of Devontae Parker for 28? I'm like, yeah, definitely. But, yeah. You know, that's just kind of how she rolls. Well, and a good example of that, of seeing the savings up front, is that Jabron, who's actually in the room right now, I'm not just going to gas him up, but he's pretty hyped. Uh, like we already said, he, he kept Aaron Jones. And great Kenyon flow Drake right now, combined. too. He does have great flow. Um, he kept Aaron Jones uh, and Kenyon Drake for a combined $32. So he goes in knowing that he has like, you know, maybe $60 of savings, you could say, between those two players. So he bids on George Kittle for 32 Then he gets Dev Devontae Adams for 55 He's got like no money left, right? That's what we think. Then he gets Leonard Fournette for 23. I'm not sure that he necessarily expected to get him for that, but it's a fine price, I guess you could say, for considering if I'm completely wrong on Fournette this year. Um, but I think even better is that he gets Juju for 29, who's my wide receiver eight this year. And so for getting him for 29, and then Mike Evans goes a little later for 46, like, or maybe a little before that, for 46, like Jabron basically made a super team off the draft because of the keeper element. And so that's the benefit of thinking ahead um, and taking guys with good keeper value because then you know going in that you have savings to allocate and pay up for players. But I don't even think he had like, I don't think he had a single overpay besides I'm not crazy about T.Y. Hilton, but like at $17, it's not like, it's not like he, you know, hamstrung himself like maybe Devontae Parker for 28. <laughs> Parker's an alpha. Parker is an alpha. First round pick. Compares very favorable favorably to AJ Green and was just a wide receiver seven last year. So how many years did it take for him to, to pan out? F took five, four and a half. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was his fifth year. Like let's not forget the Adam Gase effect. Right. And the quarterback I mean, play has never been stellar until, you know, Ryan Tannehill breaks out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or can you, can you Drake breaks out? Like everyone breaks out when Adam Gase, Post Adam Gase tenure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, yeah, I mean, so like, yeah, this is more of a prospect dynasty, like mindset uh, conversation, like for, for Parker. Yeah. It looks like there's just a huge Adam Gase, like effect across that offense and uh, Parker, you know, like, Hey, like this example, again, he could have been bright on the talent evaluation five mm -hmm. years ago, but between coaching situation and apparently there was just some 
maturity issues, like when he entered the league and not yep. really knowing how to eat right and train, that it just took a while for things to click. And that's uh, why you just never take L's. You know? <laughs> Play the long game, never take an L. Like imagine if you had taken the L on, like you took the L on Derrick Henry halfway through his third year. Not halfway through. There was four weeks left in the regular season. Okay. Plus, at, plus 12 at that weeks point. into the season, you, t- you finally took the L. <laughs> and then he just went off. Well, I also get criticized, Jeff, for holding on for my, to my guys for too long. So really, I felt like it was a mature decision to try to give myself a better chance to win. And then obviously, Derrick Henry erupts for you know one of the best four-game stretches we've seen in the modern era and then continues it the following year. Um, so yeah, you know, the, I think the the lesson there is if you believe in your ability to evaluate talent um, and you can recognize in the situation that things could change that could allow that talent to come to life, uh, then it's worth holding on. This is why I ask you know, some of the guests that we've had on, like Evan Silva, um, how long are you willing to wait on guys when you feel really strongly about them in the preseason and then we get a couple weeks in? Um, because that's exactly something that I've struggled with in the past where I'm like, I believe in this guy. I believe in the situation. It hasn't worked out yet. His values, you know, tanked or whatever it is. Um, am I being, you know, stubborn in holding on to these guys? Is it folly or is it really just riding the wave? And rather than selling low, I'm hoping that, you know, they've recouped value. And I think you can look at something like that with Miles Sanders last year. I paid $21 for him. Um, it took a, most of the, you know, it took most of the season for him to really start to produce. And that also took a Jordan Howard injury. Um, but at the same time, you know, it did work out and now the talent has the situation, especially when you have a keeper element, when you have a keeper element, you definitely want to play the long game. Um, doesn't mean punt the season so that you have a really good situation next year, but more so, you know, you, you have a little bit more reason and justification for holding on to guys that haven't panned out quite yet. So good point on that, Jeff. Thanks for bringing up my Derrick Henry PTSD. Uh, so we just got a trade offer put pushed over from uh, our lovely commissioner, Will. What do you think about this? So the trade offer is Julian Edelman, Jordan Howard, Marlon Mack for DK Metcalf and DeAndre Swift. Um, I mean, I'm pretty vocal about my disdain for Jordan Howard's value this year. Um, I think Marlon Mack is like at best a bridge running back in the first half, kind of like Jordan Howard was last year for Philadelphia. I think he's probably going to exceed expectations in the first half and then fizzle out as like the the true like RB2 in that backfield who only gets change of pace work. Uh, Julian Edelman, I think, is a, is a fine value, but I have DK Metcalf ranked above him. So I really think you're downgrading at all spots. Um, and, you know, obviously your, your own in individual valuations matter, but I have Julian Edelman at wide receiver 30, whereas I have DK Metcalf at wide receiver 21. Um, I have uh, DeAndre Swift at RB26. And then all the way down, I have Marlon Mack at RB44 and Jordan Howard all the way down at RB49. And I recognize I'm below consensus on both those players, and that's intentional. So to me, sorry, Brett. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I don't think Jeff's going to take that one. Um, yeah, we're getting the response in now. <laughs> Just nah. <laughs> um, but yeah, good stuff. So, Jeff, any final thoughts here as we wrap up episode 38, two weeks ahead of the season? This was like a fucking marathon episode. It's been almost two hours. It has been a long time. Got to get on uh, pretty soon, though, and kind of do like a quick preview of our uh, best bets. Um, you know, season-long bets, 
and week one. Um, I think I'm going to be hammering the overs, um, a lot of those. Uh, I don't know. If you follow me on Twitter, I tweet out one bet that I like. It's a little bit of a homer pick, but um, big fan of uh, McDermott for a coach of the year, like plus 2,000. But uh, I think we got to get on early next week and go through those, don't, don't you? Yep, I think so too. Um, we'll be coming at you guys with a lot of content here in the final sprint before the start of the season. And it's not just going to be podcast content. It's not just going to be Twitter content. So keep your eyes and ears out for that stuff. Um, very exciting uh, coming from our end, I think. So with that said, we appreciate you guys tuning in episode 38. We're hoping you guys continue to tune in as we progress into the 2020 season. We're very excited for what the season holds and it feels like it's happening. So let's keep, let's hope that, you know, the momentum keeps going and we get football this year. So thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you, Jeff, for being here, of course. Uh, and we hope to catch you next time.